Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, Conversations with Writers Exploring What's Informed Their Books and Their Lives, around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent, Como Hotels and Resorts, Toomey, and Ultimate Library. I'm joined by Catherine D. Sullivan, oceanographer, explorer, former NASA astronaut, the first American woman to spacewalk in 1984. She flew on three shuttle missions, including the one that deployed the Hubble Space Telescope, and she headed up the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration during President Barack Obama's time in office. She's the author of the book, Handprints on Hubble, an astronaut's story of invention about deploying the telescope and about the people who made it work. It's a revelation. Kathy, welcome. Hi, Michelle, how are you doing? Kathy, the last time we spoke was almost two years ago. You were on a vessel moored in Guam, about to travel down to the deepest part of the ocean, 11 kilometers below sea level, to the Mariana Trench in the Western Pacific. A belated congratulations on becoming the first woman to get there. Thank you. Also now the most vertical person in the world, according to the fine folks at Guinness World Records. I love that. That's a great record to hold, too. This edition, Kathy, of The Wandering Book Collector is airing on World Oceans Day. And with that in mind, where are the stories of hope at a time when some say we're destroying the oceans faster than we're learning about them? Well, that, that is a very high stakes race. And I think the way you put it characterizes it pretty aptly. Uh, you know, the passion and interest and level of dollars that rush to exploration and exploitation long through the course of history have often outpaced the rate of knowledge and discovery. Uh, but I do take some hope uh, in a couple of areas. Uh, there's some, I think, really influential people who've been working across the globe to move countries to act and, and put more and more sectors of the ocean under protection. Sylvia Earle, the famed marine ecologist, calls these hope spots, for example. Uh, John Kerry, when he was Secretary of State in the United States, uh, you know, did continuous shuttle diplomacy, I think, on behalf of the oceans and, and helped to catalyze quite an expanse in the amount of uh, protected area we have in the oceans. It's still, it's still not enough to really take good care of the oceans. It doesn't rival. Uh, in any, by any means, the proportion of our land areas we set aside to take extra care of. Um, so, you know, that gives me some hope. And, you know, if you pay attention to the prizes and scholarships and other arenas where, where young scientists and activists are spotted and celebrated, there are some really fabulously creative, vibrant talents coming along in the next generation. And uh, they're full of great ideas. And I think a good thing is they're not inclined to great patience. They understand the urgency of more vigorous action on behalf of the oceans. And they're you know, agitating constructively, passionately, and often very effectively to make that happen. Well, that's a, that's a good, positive, optimistic answer on June 8th. Um, to your book, Kathy, Handprints on, on Hubble, you wrote that from a young age you had, I quote, a hunger for travel and adventure. Is that desire as strong as ever today for you? Yeah, it really is. It, it, has, it has morphed a bit. I think underlying even that 
desire for travel and adventure was a pretty boundless and wide ranging curiosity, which has always characterized me. You know, can be both a wonderful, very unique strength, and and of course, every every good strength has a flip side of being potentially a weakness. But um, it has led me to really always be curious across a very wide array of interests. I mean, my first deep academic interest in schooling was foreign languages, not the sciences, for example. Uh, and although I turned away from that field academically in my college years, you know, the interest is still there and I still delight in, in the abilities I have to speak several other foreign languages. So it's morphed in the sense of, you know, with, with age and time and having, having been able to travel physically to many, many, many places, uh, the urgency to you know, buy more airline tickets and punch my passport with another stamp, you know that has certainly declined. Uh, and my interest in returning to favorite places, or digging more deeply into people and culture rather than just the next patch of geography, uh, that's come a bit more to the foreground. Good thing as you get a bit older and the strains of airline travel become more and more a bother. You also wrote that your earliest childhood fascination was with maps. Can you remember and tell me some of the imaginary forays that you took? You know, I think that interest in maps really first began when I was oh, six coming on, seven years old. And we moved from our little apartment in New Jersey where I spent my first years out to Southern California, uh, the flanks of Los Angeles, which was still a lot of open ground at the time. Uh, and it, you know, it just opened up a whole new sense of freedom to explore for me. Uh, my little group of pals and I would most commonly spend, you know, all day from right after breakfast until supper time or late enough we were getting in trouble, you know, out on our own, wandering around. There were open hills, a uh, hundred yards behind my house. If you save three dollars, you go rent a horse for an hour and ride around a bit. And so that that sense of, you know, kind of physical freedom and personally going and investigating and exploring places you know, those were very naive little girl explorations, but the excitement and the sense of discovery and interest was certainly there. Maps similarly came around about the same time. Um, some significant experiences around second grade, both with first using a map uh, on my own independently actually, uh, to think about where, where my family was going on vacation and a class assignment to draw a map of how we walked from our home to school, which I, I even then had some actual spatial sense of it. There's you know, a street that goes an odd angle here. How does that connect to the other street over here? And I remember working, help, my father helping me work through that and think through the geometry, not look, not look on a street map, not look up the answer, but build the answer, think about it. And, and that, again, that experience of kind of discovering I have the capacity within me to ask, a question I've never asked before or encounter of something never I encountered before and engage with it, make some sense of it. And then, you know, test the sense I had made of it, see if it mapped out, if it was true to what was actually there. I, those little, little tiny gems of an experience, uh, just, you know, they were exciting, they were exhilarating, they felt good to me. And I think that was, you know, I've, I've often used the metaphor that my parents were sort of magically wonderful at helping both my older brother and I, uh, from a very, very young age, have these little gems of experiences that were like, 
you know, the first muscle moves on these muscles of inquiry and exploration and discovery. And just, just like trying to strengthen your physical body, your intellectual muscles start getting flexed with small little baby steps. But you keep, if you keep at that training, if you keep at that exercise, you know, it, it grows and develops in all of us over time. Well, we can't ask much more from a childhood than that. Um, I'm going to fast forward from kind of foreign languages, as you said, switching to earth sciences. And, and while studying for your PhD, you applied to NASA in 1976. Eight years later, you were on your first shuttle voyage. It's the ultimate journey leaving the planet. And I was captivated by your descriptions of glimpsing planet Earth through the shuttle's windows. Can you describe that sight and that feeling? It's a struggle to describe it just in words. And, you know, pictures, even on gigantic IMAX screens, fall short as well. But, uh, you know, I think part of what's so amazing about it is in part of your mind, you know, you're looking at someplace you know well, it's where you've been your whole life. And, but in another sense, you, you've just so never seen it in anything like that way, from anything like that angle, with anything like that scope and scale and you know maybe maybe it's your brain wrestling with wow how can i be so certain i know this and it's familiar but you know i how come when i was down on earth i could never quite grasp that this is what it really is uh it's uh you know it, it the planet fills fills your entire field of view uh you can get pretty good broad views from the space shuttle i mean it's through windows and it's not un totally unbounded but you know, you're seeing, you know, you see whole continents or the bulk of a large ocean all at a glimpse out your office window. And you know, one of my flights, uh, the flight where we deployed the Hubble telescope. In fact, we were we were higher than usual uh, to, because the Hubble needed to get very high. And at one point, when we were getting everything ready to come back to Earth, I was um, standing watch, if you will, on the upper flight deck while everybody else was down below dealing with their, their suits for re-entry. And I remember looking up out the, the sweep of forward windows, so 180 degree windows out the front of the shuttle. And there was the earth going by, you know, blue and white and brown. And then I got busy with something for a little while, not for very long. And I looked up again and the, the planet had disappeared. There was nothing but the open black of space out the window. And I, I mean, I really had this shocking thought of where'd it go? And I had to, you know, get stick my head way up into that arc of windows and crane my neck around to see we'd, you know, we'd we'd sort of been like straight over part of the planet like the sun is at noon. And in the space that I'd been distracted with my work, we'd gotten to where we were, you know, sort of at the sunrise or sunset point. So the planet was now off our left wing and slightly behind. But I mean, that's an astonishing experience to have a whole, a whole planet, your whole planet disappear from your view in the span of a couple of minutes. It, I mean, it was just astonishing. I mean, it still takes my breath away to recall that moment. When you see it, Kathy, do, do you think, does this come into it at all? Do you think that's home? That's where I belong? Um, you know, I didn't really feel it quite that way. I, you know, I intellectually, you know, that's kind of knew that. And maybe it was the, the map freak in me 
I, I think I mostly was marveling at how, at, at the experience of seeing areas and places that you know, I knew quite well from the map presentations uh, and here they were as they actually are. So, I mean, maybe a bit like seeing an abstract portrait of someone and then meeting, meeting them in the flesh and saying, oh, right, I mean, it was a decent representation of you, but it was just a representation. You know, the, the, the actual you's got a lot of different characteristics and aspects than I was able to pick up through the, the caricature or the, the abstract. And I also um, wanted to, to catch this line and present it to you again, which is that you wrote um, on your second space flight after arriving in orbit, you said, although nearly six years had passed since my first space flight, I felt instantly at home. And I wondered if kind of that's more like home than you know, that's where you feel comfortable. Well, that remark really refers in that experience mostly to being back in microgravity. Uh, you know, the first time you experience microgravity, like for days on end, you're you rather aware of, I mean, your body is adjusting in lots of different ways and you're, you're learning, there's a different way to move in microgravity. You need to learn, you know, you slow your motions down, you're more gentle, something that would take a lot of your muscle on earth will not take much at all in microgravity. If you put that much muscle into it, you can have something ricocheting around the spacecraft and maybe getting damaged. So your, your body adapts to that different way of being and moving in microgravity over your first several days there. Uh, and you're, on my first flight by, certainly by day three, I, I felt completely normal and pretty attuned to this, the wiser, better ways of moving and working in zero G. And so I, I remember wondering between those flights, how sticky that, that motor memory and that experiences, because it is so radically different than you're gonna spend once you get back to earth. Uh, and so I guess that was what I really was reflecting on when we arrived at zero gravity. It was like, oh yeah, I know what this is. Uh, here we are, right back again. Uh, didn't, you know, felt, I mean, my body physically, physiologically was still doing some you know, biochemical reactions to readapt. But in terms of everything else in all of my actual awareness, it was like from the known environment of living day to day on planet Earth, boom, transported to the very well-known environment of living for the next week in microgravity. And it was an instantaneous, oh yeah. And that, you know, I just, I hadn't quite known what to expect. You know, I'd heard other astronauts who'd made their second or third flight before me comment on did they have the same kind of adaptation the second or third time? But, but to hear people comment on it is different than to feel for yourself how completely fully natural and instant, instantaneous it feels. Well, who knew that zero gravity was just like riding a bike, turns out. It just stays with you. <laughs> um, In fact, you've talked to a lot of astronauts uh, a lot of astronauts will tell you, and I certainly do still periodically dream in, in zero gravity where I've got the freedom of movement in my dreams that I would have if I was in micro. I'm the only person that's got it in these dreams usually. 
but and it's it's very 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 much fun. Well, that is very enviable. Might try and conjure that tonight. Um, as you said, Kathy, you were on the mission that deployed Hubble in 1990, and. That telescope has totally revolutionized our understanding of the universe. Describing Hubble's capabilities, you write, if our vision was as sharp as Hubble's, we could read car license plates from 32 kilometers away. When you see the images brought back from Hubble, looking into the cosmos where stars are born, where there are thousands of galaxies, does it feel to you like there must be life somewhere else? Well, it's, you know, as a scientist, I just figure, the odds, the odds that there are, is not some form of life anywhere except right here are just, I mean, that's, you know, that's just a crazy proposition. Uh, and as an oceanographer, of course, I remind people, uh, you know, we discovered you know, large colonies of completely novel life forms right here on this planet uh, in the course of my lifetime, in my early years of graduate school. Uh, in an environment where in all the decades and centuries of science before, it was a solid and stated known fact that there could not possibly be any life. So, you know, we'd, we'd underestimated the capacity of life and, and where and how it can exist, even here on this planet that humans have been on for thousands of years. So the, the likelihood that you know, we have such a complete understanding of what life takes that we can say with any confidence, well, you know, it can't be anywhere except places that are exactly like here. That's just a, that's on the face of it, a ridiculous proposition. It's been proven wrong on our own planet in the 1970s. The likelihood that it's the kind of life form that's commonly imagined in science fiction of, you know, feet or arms or head or, or eyes and uh you know my usual joke is the, the likelihood that it's gonna the life when you discover it will walk up, will drive up in a bmw and hand you a business card that's pretty low uh, it's much more likely to be sing, single cellular or something bacterial but again if you look at our own planet the bulk of life by biomass on this planet is bacteria and insects we humans are so proud of us higher ordered critters. We, we don't think very much of those forms of life. They're kind of something between nasty and annoying. Uh, so well, I, I think many people, when they imagine their science fiction scenarios, uh, they, they too are thinking, oh, someone like me, not the kind of life that's more common even here on my own planet. Kathy, what are your thoughts then about living off planet? Well, um, I guarded, I would say, or guarded between guarded and skeptical. I'm not at all in favor of the scenarios for living off planet that boil down to saying that boil down to lifeboats. We're screwing up this planet so badly, we're just going to not bother trying anymore. We're just gonna, we're just going to leave. Uh, or some of us are going to leave. I mean, you know, none of the concepts transport all of humanity to some other place that's better or being better tended than here. It's just some fortunate few, although those will not be uh, resort type experiences. They'll be very difficult experiences as breaking into new frontiers always are. Um, 
but but I I really I'm firmly opposed to those scenarios. I think there's almost an, an amoral, immoral underpinning to them that says I'm going to shirk and disregard and just ignore any sense that I have an obligation on this planet as a steward and a citizen. I'm just going to be able out. Uh, I think that's unconscionable. Um, so I guess I'm still, my mindset is still more in the exploration mode, uh, more in the way of, I would make the analog more to Antarctica uh, or than permanent settlements, you know, exploration discovery, uh, you know, maybe some amount of, of resource uh, utilization like some are proposing on the moon. Uh, but again, you know, it's, uh, we do always seem to, launch into new frontiers with humans with entirely mercantile uh, and pragmatic, you know, utilitarian notions. And, you know, so I think this planet and the solar system and the cosmos are grander creations than just uh, hardware stores for us to take from what we, what we critters need. Picking up on that, I, in my research, I was fascinated to read how as much as 40 years ago on one of your shuttle missions, you, you were focusing on measuring the Earth's solar and thermal radiation to help understand climate change and also measuring air pollution. It, when I read that, it made our predicament now even more unforgivable. I feel that we were doing that kind of research so long ago. And yet, you know, this is where we are. Do, do you think we, we can make life on this earth work and we don't have to, as you say, resort to running away, escaping? Well, I think if you answer that question on the level of you know, technical and technological capacities and viable actions to take, the answer is yes, we certainly could. Uh, the trick always comes in, in what the implications of I mean, it's perhaps very apt metaphor to simplify it, but is it kind of is a lifestyle choice. Uh, and I think we could find much more viable and sustainable ways to support the current population and the growing population than the ones we're using, where our economic structures focus very much on high intensity and high density. Uh, and don't have to, are, are not required to account on their balance sheets for the side effects and consequences that fall out over the entire planet or all of society as, as those are pursued. Um, I mean, but shifting, that's, that's a huge lifestyle shift. If you consider, if I can continue my analogy, that's an immense lifestyle shift to expect an entire country or multiple countries to take. Uh, and so I'm a bit jaundiced on the probability of some grand, what enlightenment sweeping across all of humankind in the scales falling from everybody's eyes uh, to make such a shift in a really uh, short period of time. So I think we're, we've got to, we've got to work the path of doing what best we each can see in the radius of, of action and impact that we can have. And engaging with the politicians and business leaders that are, that are making those larger scale decisions. Kathy, if they needed 
someone to go to Mars with about the same journey time as Perseverance, seven months, would you put your hand up? Well, the engineer and scientist to me would want to would do a lot of due diligence about who was that invitation from and how competent were they really to mount such a mission. I wouldn't just you know go off on a lark with the first guy that says I think I have a way to get there. Um, but you know, the curious scientist and geologist in me would you know, dearly love to have the experience of seeing some of the landforms and volcanoes and things on Mars. So. Qualified, yes. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Oh, if it was a one-way ticket? Uh, uh, no, then I think I'd be in that realm of wiser traveler that we spoke about earlier in the conversation. There's, there are things I value here on this planet, people I value on this planet, people on this planet, or things on this planet I believe still are worth doing and worth you know, my energies and my time. Uh, so I would I would opt with what years I have remaining on this planet to continue investing here than jaunting off to somewhere else on the next lark. I like that answer. Um, Kathy, back to Hubble. The telescope was designed to be maintained and even approved upon in orbit, which is ambitious stuff, as you put it. I quote from the book like working on your car while wearing an inflatable sumo wrestler suit and boxing gloves with the added twist that your tools float away if you let go of them. Um, not to mention that Hubble's made up of 400,000 parts and 42,000 kilometers of wiring. You ask in the book, where did such a wild idea come from? And I wanted to ask you this, do you feel like you were born in history at exactly the right time and right place for you? And that if you could time travel to another historical era, you'd refuse and stick with being born when you were. Yeah, I, I would very much stick with who I am and where I am. Um, and as a woman, uh, if I were wired with the same curiosity and interest and uh, talents and capabilities that I have, as a woman in many other ages, I would not have had anything like the range of opportunities accorded to me that I've uh, been that have been given me and that I've been able to earn. I mean, doors doors I've gone through would were nailed shut and you know triple barred for women of many other ages. So I'm grateful to have come along when I did, and for the the men and women who went before me that you know progressively broke those locks and you know, at least kicked some of the some of the doors were at least ajar. I hope I helped kick them wider open for women who come behind me. Um, so, you know, I can't, I've been incredibly, you know, fortunate, you know, born with good parents, good health, given a good education, uh, the capacity to put hard work behind all of that and, and have the opportunities that I've done and I hope make some impacts that are worthwhile. And like, as I say, I think in many earlier times, certainly of history, uh, probably would have found some avenue for those talents and you know maybe maybe different kinds of contributions and differences but i was able to dream the dreams that i had as a young girl and admire the adventures and the inquisitiveness and the capabilities of the jacques cousteaus and the early astronauts and and i was able to go ahead and follow them to my best abilities and that would not have been possible for women in many other eras it's incredibly 
incredibly good, not good timing on my part. I, of course, had nothing to do with it, but it's very incredibly good timing for me. <laughs> your travels, Kathy, have, of course, taken you around our planet, too. And one of your trips in the book that you wrote about um, must have been fascinating to Moscow in 1987 when you wrote about traveling with the US delegation for the 30th anniversary party of the launch of Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite. You were in fact the single US astronaut to go. How did that kind of travel energize you compared to, to dangling in space? I was, um, just one clarification, I was the only US astronaut still on active duty. There were, I think three others who had left NASA and come on their own as you know former flyers. Um, well, you know, I think it was a fun, it was a fun reconnection to my earliest interests in languages and world affairs. And uh, I mean, my, my father was the technical engineering pragmatic person in the family. My mother should have been a diplomat, uh, you know, had all of those kinds of interests in the social, economic, political cultures and currents of our planet and how they interacted and worked. Uh, and I, I think I somehow magically managed to get just about the perfect blend of both of those. So the Moscow experience for me was a, a, a fun loop back to that earlier chapter to get to get a glimpse inside the Soviet Union. It was still the Soviet Union then. Um, for any of the historical novels or political articles or, or spy novels I had read, about how that country worked, get a little taste and glimmer of that, uh, get some glimpses of where the early sp Soviet space program had begun. Valentina Tereshkova was at some of our events, for example, and that was, I remember watching her flight as a young girl and it's fascinating to get to meet her as a, as a peer mm -hmm. in my 30s, I guess that would have been. Um, so, I mean, it was, you know, fascinating was what the word I came away with. It did also feel very much like suddenly being plopped into a spy novel because I remember, I remember being very aware, and I think realistically, I don't think, don't think this was a fantasy on my part. There was, there really was some great high stakes game going on. I mean, the atmosphere around the whole event was, you know, very much like some big diplomatic or spy game was going on. Um, which was interesting, but it was also very uncomfortable because it was clear, I don't know what the game is. I don't know what the rules are. Uh, I don't know what the rules of Russia are, or, you know, there's a lot, a lot about how do you, what can you do and not do as an American in the Soviet Union and, you know, stay free and safe. That's all very obscure. Um, you know, that, that, that I was always being watched and always being listened to. Uh, for you know, other than other than newspaper reasons, uh, so it was that was kind of interesting. There's a big game going on. It's high stakes. I don't know who the players are. No one's wearing their team jerseys. Uh, I, I I know in some level I'm a target or a person of interest in that game, and I just I I have never felt such a wave of relief sweep over me as I did when I. Took my last step on Soviet soil at the Moscow airport and put my foot on the Swiss Air jetliner that was going to take me back out of the country. It was, it really was like, oh God, thank heavens, I'm back to where I know how things work. Yeah, I was about to say, kind of, 
you know, what a different time. I'm not sure if that's quite accurate anymore. Um, what are, Cathy, the other journeys you want to make yet? Uh, well, as I said, there are really not any, uh, you know, go there, go to see what's there mm. journeys. Um, I mean, there are plenty of places on the planet I've not been uh, that I know are, you know, fascinating and interesting. You know, Beijing, Bhutan. It's not that I've been every place and seen every place. Um, I can't quite put my finger on what it is other than, as I said earlier, uh, through the explorations I've done, I've accumulated peoples and places that have significant meaning to me. Uh, and my, you know, if I'm going to trap physically travel now, it would be to reinvest in those rather than collect another one. And finally, Kathy, is there another book in you that you want to write? Delighted you should ask. A colleague of mine here in town and I have been working on a second children's book. Uh, about how to spacewalk. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a perspective we're trying to create is you come along with me, you're my spacewalking buddy, I'll, I'll help you learn the ropes and we'll go do a spacewalk together. So that's, that's under contract and in pretty final editorial stages and I hope we'll be out next year. Well, I look forward to buying that for my kids. Kathy Sullivan, thank you very much for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Always delighted to talk with you, Michelle. And my thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent, Como Hotels and Resorts, to me and Ultimate Library. Goodbye. <laughs>